Hey, everybody, it's Paula Ferris, and this is a bonus episode of Journeys of Faith. We're talking to Stacey Abrams, whose name is being bandied about for vice president on the Democratic ticket. Now, Abrams is the former minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives. And if you remember, a few years ago, she became the first black woman to hold a major party's nomination for governor. In this episode, Leader Abrams opens up sharing how her faith has shaped her political views and why she believes Jesus was a progressive. She's also going to tell us what she thinks about possibly becoming the VP pick for the Democratic ticket. We did record this episode before coronavirus really ramped up here in the United States and also before Senator Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race, making Joe Biden the presumptive nominee. Here's Stacey Abrams. Joining us right now is leader Stacey Abrams. Stacey, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you are talking to us, we're talking remotely, and you are joining us from your home in in Georgia, correct? I am. Wonderful. Thanks for taking the time. So I want to dig into your background a little bit. You were born in Wisconsin. You were raised in Mississippi. And then your family moved to Atlanta, where your parents pursued degrees and the ministry. In fact, both of them became Methodist ministers. And I went to your website, and it says that you and your five siblings were raised on three principles. Go to school, go to church, and to take care of one another. So I imagine that faith played a huge role in your upbringing. Absolutely. Before my parents became ministers, I I like to joke, they were always preaching. So (laughs) (laughs) they just finally got paid for it. They finally channeled it somewhere. (laughs) Exactly. So we grew up in southern Mississippi. My parents were very committed in their raising of us. They wanted us to know that they expected great things of us. They didn't care what we did. They just wanted us to know we could do. But the way they framed it for us, you know, education was about strengthening our minds. Uh, Service was about strengthening our hearts. And faith was about strengthening our souls. Mm -hmm. They wanted us to understand that we needed to believe in something larger than ourselves, in particular, because we grew up on that line between working class poverty and, you know, and it was easy sometimes to let yourself get dragged down by the lack that you saw around you, especially when juxtaposed with kids who had so much more. But what they wanted us to understand, I think, and what they girded us with through our faith was that we we were sufficient, that our faith taught us that our sufficiency wasn't about what we had in material ways, but who we were and what we were willing to do to live that faith and live that spirit. Mm. And it it mattered. It changed, I think, for each of us, how we saw ourselves in the context of the world we were a part of. But it also created this aspirational space of knowing that we could do more, that we weren't limited by our economics, that we weren't constrained by our location, but that we were imbued with this spirit that called on us to do more, not only for our family, but for our community. Mm-hmm. I believe I read that you said you may have had been experienced poverty, but never poverty in spirit. I know your father was deeply involved in prison ministries, and he raised all of you. There were six kids in your family to value public service. 
Um, and you just said it, that your parents encourage you to believe in something larger than yourself, to think outside of yourself. I was raised in a, in a faith-filled home, but I really didn't believe it for myself until probably high school. So when was the faith of your father and mother the faith of Stacy? When did you make it your own? And, and I, I do want to say this. My dad's focus was prison ministry. My mom's focus was often on the destitute. So mm. you know, she would take us to housing projects and dad would take us to youth justice, you know, youth facilities. So they, there was always a partnership between my parents, even in how we were raised to think of our faith. Mm. And so I always think about them together. But to your question, uh, I was baptized at the age of eight. And I did it actually because my younger sister, who's a year younger than I was, she wanted to get baptized, but she didn't want to go by herself. And I think Leslie was just mesmerized by the baptismal process where you dress up in the white robe and we had the pool that you were dunked into. She was very excited about it, but she didn't want to do it by herself. And this was not a I sprinkling. This is immersion. <laughs> oh, no. We, yes, we, we, were, we were solidly Southern missionary Baptists. So. You you went in, you came up, you <laughs> yeah. went down again. Yeah. So I remember thinking, if Leslie wants to do this, I should do it too. And we got we received Bibles from my mom and my dad in recognition. Leslie's Bible was white, mine was black. And there was a little inscription inside. And I remember thinking when I got my Bible that, you know, I I'd been baptized and I believed, but understanding what that belief meant in all of its contours wasn't as clear for me. Uh, I was raised to be thoughtful and to investigate. And while I had a fundamental belief in this higher power and this deity, I could quote scripture because that's what you learn to do. I could not have told you exactly what that meant until I was older. When we became Methodist, I was 12 and we went through confirmation class. And that was really the first time that I remember being very thoughtful and insistent about understanding what my faith structure was. It also helped that my parents said they weren't taking us to heaven with them, that we had to get there on our own. <laughs> I love And your so <laughs> <laughs> they, they, it was, it was a jarring thing to hear. Yes. Um, <laughs> yep. But they, you know, they said, you know, we're going to take you to church. We're going to make sure you have every exposure. But your faith is your own, and you're going to have to make sure you know what it is that you believe. Mm-hmm. Well, that's I think and, that's important in any sort of faith construct. You can't just believe it because your parents tell you it's true. You exactly. have to you have to come to a place where you believe it for yourself, whether that's through experiences. Yeah, and and part of it was, and I didn't fully cognize it when they said it, but part of it was because when faith is tested, if it's not real, if it's not yours, it does not work. Mm-hmm. That if it is something that you hold by tradition, when it is dark and hard and things make no sense, the point of faith is to give you something that helps renew you. And you cannot be renewed by something that's non-existent. Right. Tell me about currently, how do you dig in and lean into your faith? Are you, are, do you go to church regularly? Are you in any kind of studies, um, women's groups? So I I read on my own. I have a devotional that my mother gave me when I started my campaign for governor that I still look to. It's been harder in the last couple of years to be as regular in my attendance as I should be. 
but I am a member of a church and I go when I can. My schedule is a bit erratic, so I can imagine. they can't count on me to be a member of a committee. <laughs> uh, so, but, uh, but part of what my parents also taught me was that there's the practice and tradition of studying for your faith, but there's also the active obligation of living it. And that's not to excuse my you know, poor attendance, but it is to me a recognition of the constancy of my faith that my responsibility is to renew it because I should not because I'm seen doing so. You have said that um, you consider yourself a progressive because Jesus was a progressive. I want to read a quote. You said, the reason I consider myself a progressive is that my reading of the Bible says that Jesus was a progressive. The faith I practice believes in active service and active engagement. So I think we can all kind of believe what we want to about Jesus. We have our own personal interpretation, whether or not we want to think he's a progressive or he's a socialist or he's a Republican or he's a Democrat or he's a moderate or he's an independent. Um, from your perspective and your vantage point and your purview, what do you think his take would be on, say, gun control and maybe abortion rights? Sure. I think of progressive as not this hard, hardened ideological space, but as a belief system that says that we are supposed to make opportunity and comfort available to all, that our mission on this earth is to ease the suffering of others. And that's where I enter the space. So not necessarily to cast a certain ideological bent to Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. but to look at his actions and his behaviors and most of his presence in the New Testament it's a conversation about how you create space for others to be wholly who they are and to to relieve suffering, to advance justice, and to practice forgiveness. Those are the, the tenets that hold me, the conversations about the poor. And so if we were to extrapolate from that to modern day, when I think of gun safety, I, I do not think of it as taking away someone's right, I think about it as an affirmative responsibility that as someone who knows how to shoot a gun, when I was taught how to shoot, I was taught, first of all, you don't point it at anybody. And it sounds like a basic lesson, but the point is your obligation is to protect others, to protect their safety, to be responsible for your actions. And so I do think that the proliferation of any danger that doesn't have the guidance of ensuring that more people aren't harmed would be consistent with uh, who he may be in a modern context. Okay. Uh, likewise with abortion, I, I believe that the obligation is to ensure that we each make our choices. So I, I don't speak to the content of the decision. I speak to the who gets to make the decision. And reproductive choice, reproductive health, and abortion rights are wedded together in our society today. I know women who've had abortions because they've needed to do so in order to protect themselves and their families. And it is a difficult, complex conversation that should not be invaded by another person's lack of knowledge of who and what is happening. Jesus also said, blessed are the peacemakers. You spent 
um, from 2006 to 2017 in the Georgia House of Representatives. You were the minority leader from 2011 to 2017. Tell me, what will you do in that context of blessed are the peacemakers? What will you do, Stacey, to create bridges? We don't need more division. I think we need unification. What will you do to reach across the aisle? When I became Democratic leader at the end of 2010, heading into the 2011 session, my party had lost every statewide office. We had been decimated in the Senate and we were close to being outnumbered by two thirds in the House where I became leader. And I sometimes caught flack from some of my members because what I would say is my first job is to find ways for us to work together. That my job was not to defeat the Republicans in policy. My job was to find ways to serve the people. And that meant to find moments where we could work together to advance policy. If that couldn't work, my job was to defeat policies I thought would cause harm and to promote policies that I thought could create good, even if they weren't going to pass. And so I got in trouble uh, both during my tenure and actually when I ran for governor in the primary, because I did work very closely with the other side on issues that I thought were were critical. So Mm -hmm. whether it was education or transportation or criminal justice kinship care, helping families taking care of their children who are not their own. My responsibility was to look for points of common ground because most people don't care about your partisanship. They care about their lives and the consequences of bad policy. The peacemaking is not simply not fighting. It is actually creating peace and prosperity within other people's homes and their lives. And when you're not battling to survive, That is a blessed piece. And so my responsibility as a legislator was to find those spaces where we could work together. But it was also my job to defeat legislation that I thought could cause harm. Uh, Because having grown up poor, I know what it feels like to be on the, the receiving end of the inattention or worse, the intention of bad policy. And Peacemaking isn't this ethereal notion of just not being at war. It is making certain that we are providing comfort and aid. And if there's something that was happening that diminished that, my job was to stop it. Mm -hmm. But it was also my responsibility to lift up things I thought were good. And that meant even if I didn't think they would become law, that didn't absolve me of the responsibility of talking about them. And that's what I did. Don't go anywhere. A quick break and we'll be right back. I want to delve into your um, authorship. You're a best-selling author, Stacey. I think a lot of people don't know you've written, I believe, eight romance novels. We're going to dive into that. I'm going to talk about your other political aspirations in a second. But I, I want to I want to loop back around to something that we were just talking about. Um, I read recently in the New York Times, the article is called When Black Lives Matter is Invoked in the Abortion Debate. And I know this is a tough topic for so many to talk about. Um, but I think there's a responsibility for politicians to let us know where they stand and, and why they stand in that position. Um, but in this article, it says that black women continue to have the highest abortion rate, according to a study published in the American Journal of Public Health. So I know you're a woman of deep faith, Stacey. You've said faith is a part of who you are and it guides your vision. How do you reconcile 
that with your faith and the message of equity, knowing that there is a disproportionate number of black children that are never given a chance because of abortion in this country? Sure. First, I do not believe life begins at conception. I believe life begins at viability. And abortion exists as a matter of legal right until the moment of viability. And And when is the moment of viability? When uh, when a fetus can survive outside the womb and can survive without uh, the mother. And so that's my belief. And therefore, the abortion laws that we have are all constructed to protect that time period. The number of black women who have abortions is almost directly connected to the lack of access to health care, the lack of access to sex education, the lack of access to resources, the lack of protection in their communities. And we can't divorce those conversations from one another. As a woman of faith, I believe absolutely in the right of a woman to choose whether to have an abortion or not. I believe that those choices have to be made within the full universe of the concern and not as an isolated number in a statistical analysis. I grew up in a community where I had friends who were molested and got pregnant and who were called upon to make these choices long before they had the emotional or intellectual capacity to really understand it. And so reproductive choice to me, reproductive rights and reproductive justice, which is the conversation so many black women are forced to have, is a larger conversation than simply one of the act of an abortion. But let's take the other piece of this. I appreciate you deconstructing this, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and and I think it's part of what happens in our society and why I was excited to do this conversation is that we find ourselves taking sides and being so hardened in our positions, we can't hear one another and we can't take in new information. We don't even want to show up to the table and talk to exactly. anyone else that doesn't, that doesn't share our ideology. I very plainly tell people I was anti-abortion through college. I was anti-abortion for most of my younger life until I had to actually have a conversation about the role that government should play in making that choice. So that's what changed. You started having these conversations. Just as my parents told me I had to get into heaven on my own, when I decided to run for office, and even before then, when I really started becoming more involved in the political space, I made myself really grapple with the hardest questions that political leaders have to deal with. And one for me was absolutely the conversation of abortion. And I've compelled myself to do more research and to have more conversations. I went to a conference that I never would have intended to go to because I wanted to understand women who were advocating for this right so intensely. And it was deeper exposure. It was a broader understanding. And there was a shame for me because I had taken exception to a dear friend of mine who had an abortion because I did not understand Mm -hmm. what she was grappling with. And the castigation that I gave to her, not by saying anything, but by not being there for her, is something that I will always regret. This is not a 
decision made lightly. This is a matter of self-protection, but also a matter of deep emotional resonance. Mm -hmm. And I'm always saddened by our lack of willingness to give grace to those who have to make this choice. And so for me as a politician in particular, there is no role that we, we should play before viability. And if you talk to almost 99% of those who are in favor of reproductive rights, they share that belief. Our laws are designed to provide the greatest amount of freedom with the least amount of constraint. And that's what I, I push for. Okay. I want to talk about your political aspirations. We know that you ran for governor in 2018 against Brian Kemp and came up short by about 50,000 votes. Um, you were recently on The View, my former stomping grounds, and you told the ladies <laughs> there that that you absolutely see yourself running for president one day. So tell me, how does your faith come into play when you envision that? Part of my faith is that I believe I am responsible for doing the most good possible. And yeah, as you pointed out earlier, I'm, I live in the Methodist tradition. My parents made us Baptist first, and then they made us Methodist, but I decided <laughs> to stay Methodist. I actually did full investigation. I read, I read widely. I read mm-hmm. almost about every faith tradition there is. And I came back to the Christian tradition because it resonated most for me. And I came back to Methodism because it is grounded as a, in this act of faith that it is insufficient to say you believe if you aren't living in the principle of service. That's what I believe. And for me, as someone who grew up in a community that was not always well served by government, as someone who has participated as an active member of legislative bodies, but also as a bureaucrat, I know the power that government wields over our lives. And the Bible warned us about it. I mean, the Bible is nothing but conversations about politics right? <laughs> and, and, and the power and dominion that earthly leaders have over who we are and what we become. My desire to be president is grounded in the belief that that is a position from which I could do the greatest amount of good. Being that president. That my capacity for being president, that the ability to serve a nation and to provide sucker and capacity and comfort, but also opportunity and access, that there is no other universe, there's no other area of our lives where we disparage those who want to do the best they can for the most they can, mm-hmm. except in politics. You've been courted by several campaigns, Stacey, for the role of vice president. I know there were rumors a while ago that you're going to be Biden's running mate. Bernie has praised you. Senator Warren campaigned for you in 2018 and said that she was open to naming a female VP. Before Buttigieg dropped out, he met privately with you. Bloomberg donated to Fair Fight before he dropped. You are in demand. So let me ask you, why should you be vice president? I would be an excellent running mate. I would not forget the work that has to be done to win an election. And I am a very strong and consistent campaigner. In the service of our country, I have the capacity to be not only a good manager, I have personally undertaken to learn about foreign policy for the last 25 years because I thought it would make me better Mm -hmm. at domestic policy. So without even thinking about the possibility of running for the presidency, I just wanted to understand the world better. And I've 
proven myself to be a very good manager. I've started a number of multi-million dollar organizations that not only serve communities, but I've also started a very successful financial services uh, company with my co-founders. I would be good at the job. And you're a romance novelist. You forgot to add that. I'm a romance novelist, which means (laughs) I know how to take the most boring aspects of society and (laughs) turn into compelling conversation. I want to ask you about what is your take on the candidates that are left standing? It started out so diverse. And, you know, we know you because you were the first black woman in the U.S. to be a major party's uh, gubernatorial nominee. And then you went on to become the first African-American to deliver the response to the State of the Union. And we have this incredibly diverse Democratic field. And now left standing is essentially several white men in their late 70s. So when it comes to diversity and equity, what's your take on the candidates that are left standing in the Democratic Party? I think the process has to continue to evolve. We are using a process that was intended to solve for the failings of 2016 Mm -hmm. and I think unfortunately created new challenges in 2020. And because of the strictness of the approach, the party couldn't adapt to acknowledge that things had changed, that the metrics that were being used were not valid in this moment. And so my hope is that in the next iteration, we will do a better job not only of trying to fix what didn't work before, but anticipating what is to come. Mm -hmm. I, I don't disparage anyone who remains in the race, but it was a system that is designed to favor those who began with a deep well of name recognition and capacity. Uh, We have gotten used to in recent years, sort of the star quality and the, the sort of lightning strike that was president Obama, but there's a mundaneity to running for office. And we need a process that recognizes that if we do want more people to come to the table, we've got to make sure the table Mm -hmm. is designed to accommodate them. Good point. I know that you have a relationship with Joe Biden, former vice president, and he endorsed you in the governor's race back in 2018 in Georgia. Faith is such an important part of his story. It's instrumental in your narrative, too, as we've been talking about throughout this podcast, Stacey. But for those in the faith circles who want a moral custodian in charge right now, they want a moral custodian to be president. Should they be concerned about Biden's gaffes, uh, calling his wife his sister, and saying he's running for Senate? What can you do to quell any of those concerns? (laughs) I'm I'm laughing in part because having been a candidate who has misstated something or did not realize the person on my left was on my right, I I think people, we see these moments and we extrapolate from them such deep meaning. And sometimes it's just people make mistakes. Okay. So you're not concerned. I'm not. I'm not. Vice President Biden has had a long history of malapropisms, but that has never diminished his capacity to serve. I think the other part of your question I want to respond to is the the question of faith that I believe is is very much a part of every candidate who's still viable. Their faith may not match my own in terms of my Christian faith, but I think that the candidates we have on the Democratic side Mm -hmm. are, are very much moral leaders. Because, again, I believe that it's not simply what you say you believe. It's what you're willing to do to live that belief. And so I don't want those who hear me to believe that I think anyone is diminished in their capacity for moral leadership. Okay. 
I promised that I would talk about the eight romance novels that you've written yes. under the pen name Selena Montgomery, which I was reading. It was inspired by Elizabeth Montgomery, who played Samantha yes. and her evil twin Serena on Bewitched. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, so you're a best-selling author. If you want to read her books, you have to search for Selena Montgomery. That's your pen name. So as a best-selling author, how does the story end for you, Stacy? What's your ideal ending? So I will say this. I've not only written those books, but I also wrote Lead from the Outside, which is what got me on the New York Times bestseller list, which is more of a primer on how we can be stronger and better at what we do, especially if you're from the outside. And you have a book coming out in June. I do, called uh, Our Time is Now. But going back to my fiction writing, I -hmm. write romance because I believe that at the core of love, there's always challenge and trial there's hardship, but there's always the possibility for good that we can find not only the person you're meant to be with, but you can find the better part of yourself. Because when you are in relationship, you are best when you are in service to the other person. And so for me, the the goal is to be a writer, a thinker, a politician, a public servant who is always writing the next chapter to make life easier for others, uh, to do for those what my parents taught us to do, which is to use my mind, to use my hands, and to use my soul. And how does the story end for you? I don't know. I haven't read that far ahead. <laughs> I like to. I'm the type that reads the last page first. I I ruin it for myself. <laughs> you're my little. You're one of my sisters. I I don't like spoilers. I manage not to know the story of Game of Thrones for five years. That Thank is you. a talent. That's impressive. Yes. As we wrap up, Stacy, give me one word to articulate your faith, one word to describe it. Real. That's good. It's right to the point. Stacy, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I thank you for opening up allowing us to kind of peel back the layers and to find out more about who you are and what informs your decisions and, you know, for answering some really tough questions, too. Good luck to your future. We look forward to the next few chapters of your life as well. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Stacy. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Journeys of Faith. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. And let us know what you think with a rating and a review. Journeys of Faith, it's a production of ABC Audio produced by Whitney Lloyd, Lewis Millman, Leighton Schneider, and Susie Liu. Thanks again for listening. I'm Paula Ferris.